first of all, thank you for, for taking the time. I, I'm really excited about this. Uh, just reading over your bio and your website and everything was really fascinating for me. So, um, so welcome Mike Malloy to the Project Purple podcast. And thank you for your time uh, for joining us here today via FaceTime, not Skype. So make sure we get that right for our viewers and listeners, or our listeners, not viewers. Uh, so, so thank you for taking the time and uh, sharing with us and our audience uh, what you're all about, Mike. And I, as I said before, I, I'm really excited to have this conversation because yeah. uh, I'll be really honest with you. Um, I didn't know much about you. And then Vin sent me your, uh, your website and I started to kind of delve in and dive into uh, some of the things you've done. And I started to look at uh, some of the publications that you had uh, had written, and one of them really kind of jumped out, which we'll hopefully get to here at, in our conversation. But for our listeners at home, um, why don't you take some time here to give us background on who Mike Malloy is, what you do, yeah. what you're about, what, what you've done to get to this point, and uh, we'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, for sure. You know, I've, um, I've done a little bit of everything in the, you know, throughout my career so far. Um, so when I was leaving like undergraduates, I went to a small school in Maine and, um, like studying there, like that kind of like lit the science fire in me that I wanted to go off and do more in the world of, you know, research and things like that. And so, um, I actually worked at the children's hospital down in Boston for a couple of years, uh, doing research on muscular dystrophy, um, you know, all basic research at the bench, things like that. Um, but it was great. I had a really good time there, and it sort of set the stage for me going back to school. Um, and I always knew I wanted to get into uh, immunology. So uh, immunology is sort of the study of how our body fights off um, disease, specifically like bacteria, viruses, and cancer. Um, and so I applied to a bunch of schools and ended up going to Dartmouth, which is up here, you know, where I live now. Um and so in 2006, I started my PhD um, and worked on a bunch of different things. But like one of the, you know, the major topics was understanding how the immune system, uh, specifically these things called T-cells, fight off um, viruses and generate this thing called immunological memory, which is oddly enough kind of coming full circle with like the world of like how people are now thinking about how to treat cancers. Um, so I did that. I graduated with my PhD in 2006. 11, I think, um, and I went down to the National Institute of Health where uh, I started a postdoctoral fellowship while looking at understanding how the immune system interacts with like oh, these hundreds of trillions of bacteria that live in our gastrointestinal tract and um, impacting everything that we do from health and disease and things like that. And, you know, through that process, um, started to get a little more interested in the, the world of nutrition and at that time how it was impacting like these bacteria and vice versa. Um, at the same time I was doing CrossFit, you know, I was doing, I was involved with exercise and I was doing some coaching at, you know, a CrossFit gym down in DC. And, um, so selfishly I was like, well, Hey, maybe I can figure out how to, how to like maximize my performance through, through eating, you know? Um, and so I tried a little bit of everything, you know, um, I tried high fat, low carb, uh, not calorie restricted by any means. Um, I tried, um, you know, full-blown paleo diet. I tried uh, a little bit of everything. And, you know, there there was this world of research that basically said, you know, if you can figure out how to balance out your macronutrients, so protein, fat, and carbs, that you can uh, really start to dial in your performance. And so over the last number of years, I've moved in that direction. Um, 
And as a result of that, you know, I worked obviously with myself and improved my own nutrition, but I started to work with a bunch of athletes as well. Um, and things have kind of grown way more than I ever thought they would, uh, to the point that last year I started my own company. So I'm the owner of M2 Performance Nutrition, and we run um, nutritional consulting all online with about 230 members right now, um, all across the globe. Um, so the Northeast, of course, but also places like Dubai and Australia and you know the Northwest and Canada and things like that. So um, it's kind of grown into a full-time gig that I'm doing <laughs> pretty much all the time now. So. Um, that's sort of the the short story of how how I got into this whole game. And you must love the winter because you went to school in Kobe, which is in Waterville, which I I, I went to a small uh, liberal arts school in Rhode Island, and we played Kobe College in basketball. Yep. I remember going up there, and I was like, man, this is like deep, man. <laughs> and then now you're at Dartmouth, so you, you got to love the winter and yeah, snow. So now, right? I'm, now I'm back at Dartmouth, so yeah. I, I, you know, I obviously finished, and I went down to D.C., but you know, apparently I must be like a glutton for punishment because we're back now. Yeah. Um, my wife is in her residency here for orthopedic surgery, and um, awesome. I still, I you know, one of the things I didn't tell you guys in the intro was that like I, I came back up here to work for a small biotech company, so literally like fourteen people, um, and our whole goal is to develop novel what we call you know um, immunomodulating drugs to treat like cancer and autoimmune disease, and so you know that was that was my first job when we came back up here, and um, it's kind of crazy. We like you know we went and developed a drug and put it in the clinic. Um, partnership with a pharmaceutical company and now we've got a couple more in the in the clinic or hopefully headed towards the clinic with other partners as well so um doing a little bit of everything these days but it keeps me busy for sure and it's all happening up in new hampshire which is the the most fascinating thing and so uh i was just at asco gi and um i i'd known about the move and and got a chance to say hi to him but uh steve leach who is one of the leading uh oncologist at uh, Memorial yep. Sloan Kittering just took the uh, the head of uh, Dartmouth's uh, cancer uh, hospital there and, and is hoping to build what he built at uh, Memorial Sloan Kittering up in New Hampshire. So it's re- there's a lot of good stuff happening up there. Totally. Yeah, uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, yes, the, the head of the, you know, the North Connick Cancer Center, right? So yeah. he's just down the hall from where we are now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. And uh, there's actually a pretty big pancreatic cancer meeting that's happening in Boston in yeah. September, which uh, Leach is heading. And so, you know, I, I think I lived in the Boston area after school and everyone said New Hampshire was kind of like, oh, you go there because you don't pay tax. And, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of great things up in New Hampshire and up north that, that people uh, seldom do not think about, you know, and Dartmouth naturally is one of them. So. Well, thank you for all that. And uh, so it's really fascinating. You know, I so, so I've got a question for you. So, you know, immunology, you know, for you, you, you've been invested in this for years and years prior to, I think, the last two years, maybe the last three years. I think the, the Biden, the cancer moonshot, um, you know, is really kind of what has, I think, given uh, immunology from a uh, perspective, at least from a general public, someone who doesn't know what the, the term immunology is. Right. So for you to be doing this back way back when, when no one was really thinking about it is really kind of a uh, great forethought, you know, or, or great thinking. Yeah. You know, um, the world of immunology has obviously been around for a really long time. Right. Yeah. And um, people have been studying the, you know, the immune system's ability to kill bacteria and viruses and, um, for a long, a good while as well. And probably right around when I started sort of like my grad school, sort of 2006, people were 
we're starting to think about how to how to train the immune system to identify and kill cancer, right? Um, but it was a novel concept that still really uh, there was no real proof of concept that it could work. Um, and really, in like we'll say ten years, ten, ten less than ten years, it's really revolutionized now that it's it's sort of uh, one of the pillars of how we are and how we're going to continue to try to like fight these different diseases, you know, um, between these things called checkpoint regulators, mm-hmm. which, you know, are a huge world world out now, you know, um, and then the, like the CAR T cells and things like that, that they're using for, for leukemias and things like those are two completely different, like absolute breakthroughs that are going to make a huge impact, you know, going forward, um, in that world. And it's crazy, you know, that, um, there's, a, there's stories of Jim Allison, so he discovered uh, CTLA-4, which is this like checkpoint regulator, mm-hmm. sort of one of the very first that people really worked on. And he, you know, was sort of um, going all around industry, right? So all the big companies and saying, hey, like I've got this great concept that looks, you know, looks really good and animal models and stuff. And no one, no one really wanted to touch it because there was no, no one thought it would work. And yeah. um, but he persisted and sure enough, he was able to partner that and turned into a, a blockbuster drug and, and, you know, cured a bunch of people. And then the next sort of generation with the uh, anti-PD-1 therapies yep. and things like that are all coming through now. And those are, those are even better. Right. And so it's, it's a, it's an amazing time as a scientist to sort of see the changes from the last 15 years of research being done on basic immunology, studying the way that, um, the way that honestly it all started with kind of figuring out how to fight chronic viral infections and now it's all evolved into immunology to treat cancer and um it's really really impressive and cool to see people that you know essentially were gonna unfortunately die from cancer now have a second chance so it's it's incredible yeah it's really fascinating i mean we've really delved into research about uh three years ago and um you know now with and i think that was kind of right when the tide had turned a bit you know, with regards to immunology and the focus on immunology. And I know for a lot of other cancers other than pancreatic cancer, there's been some amazing successes, um, you know, and unfortunately we just haven't had that yet for pancreatic cancer. That's the hard thing about pancreatic is getting the immune system to see the cancer. That's the hard part, right? It's, um, it's one of those unfortunate locations or, you know, immunological locations that the immune system just doesn't see it the same way that you get, um, responses for say you know uh, melanoma or breast or prostate um i think that's a big area that people are working on as i'm sure you guys are aware is how to how to kind of like take the veil off of off of the pancreatic cancer so that the immune system can see it because once it sees it and it's like it's a whole new ball game you know so hopefully that'll that'll translate into that world real soon well we're we're hoping you know and, yeah. and we have funded recently some projects uh that have you know, an immunology focus and one that we did uh, two years ago um, in Nebraska where, um, you know, it was basic research, but the research was so um, promising that they were able to catapult that gift that we gave them for about 52000 into a yep. half a million dollar That's amazing. research grant to further, you know, that project, yep. you know. So, you know, th- there is promise, um, but sadly, totally. you know, for those folks fighting right now, it's uh, – you know, it's, it's hard because there really isn't a lot going on at a mass scale, you know, outside of some clinical trials. So, so what for you then, I mean, so as I said, Mike, this, you were like kind of 
you know, in my opinion, if you're thinking about this in 2006 and before that, I mean, again, immunology wasn't really a, a common household term within the general public till about three years ago. Um, you know, and I think, you know, you had a couple things, right? You had uh, the cancer moonshot, you know, with Joe Biden and, and the Obama administration. Then you had, you know, the likes of Sean Parker, you know, with the Parker initiative. And so, you know, that was really pushed towards immunology. And then I think there were a couple other things happening. You know, I remember watching an episode of 60 Minutes and they were talking about immunology at Duke and now you're laughing. You probably know the exact episode that, I, that I, I'm uh, relating to. So what was it, though, if we go back, I mean, from when you discovered immunology, I mean, we're, we, we're possibly talking, you know, 10, 15 years prior to any of this hitting mainstream that what was it for you that just like, you know, I ask this question to scientists whenever I meet them for pancreatic cancer to say, what, well, why pancreatic cancer? What's it for you? Were you personally connected or was there a challenge or something? So why immunology for you? Like, what was it? Were you at a lab or, you know, was there a good experience or a girl maybe, you know, I don't know. I was, I was in college and, um, they offered an immunology course, right? And so uh, Professor Lynn Hannum, um, you know, someone who I'll always sort of have in the back of my mind is like a, uh, a big thank you. She taught this course and it was it was incredible. Um, I remember just sort of being really like interested in the basic science of like how the immune system worked, right? Like we have this entire structure in our body or system really that's basically designed to do one thing and it's to discriminate things that are you or essentially a part of us from things that are not us, right? And if it's us, the job is to not touch it, essentially, right? And if it's not us, if it's a bacteria or a virus, or in some cases cancer, its job is to kill it. And this was just such an incredibly cool concept to me that we've evolved this, this ability to do so. And um, that was what really drew it to me. And so I had an internship my sophomore year. Uh, this thing called, Colby called a Jan plan. So I did a month with this guy named Paul Renner at Biogen, right down in Cambridge, mm-hmm. and um, basically, you know, doing doing lab work at the lowest level. But um, it was great. I loved it, and I went back that summer. Had a great job uh, internship, and it just really sort of sealed the deal for me that that was what I wanted to study. You know, it was just such a fascinating field that people knew uh, a lot about, but not enough that I didn't think there was so some really cool stuff to go in and study. Um, so it was always my goal after graduating to get back into that world. And it was just a f- figuring out the right time and the right avenue um, for me, you know, which ultimately ended up being the post or the, the PhD at Dartmouth. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for sharing that. That's uh, I, I'm always fascinated how people get involved in such fields. And I, Hey, you didn't know back then that it would no. be probably where you are today. And, <clears throat> there's no such thing as luck, right? I'm sure people say, oh, you're lucky to, you know, you're in immunology and now it's kind of taken off and it's mainstream sure. and stuff. But I just think it's just a lot of hard work and dedication. Yeah. And I mean, I knew it would be a good sort of like, you know, from a purely selfish point of view, I knew it would be a good kind of area, like from a science point of view to get into because it, everything you, we see in modern disease is kind of controlled by the immune system, right? So every time you hear the word itis, right? Yeah. That's, that's the immune system, right? Like that's... Um, immune system doing too much inflammation in some site and so i always knew that like this was something that the, the world and that you know um people that pay money for jobs would, would kind of uh be willing to invest in and i knew that there would it would be a really interesting area to kind of move into just at the, the the basic level as well so um it all kind of worked out yeah that's for sure 
So I'm going to shift here a little bit, and I want to get into your time at the NIH. And naturally, for us, you know, uh, you know, cancer research is driven by, you know, for pancreatic cancer, 80% is done by the government, um, and you know, the NIH plays a big part of that uh, in the NCI. So talk to us a little bit about that uh, position that you had there, because that must have been pretty cool to be, you know, within the federal. Go- I mean, yeah. for those who don't know, I mean, the NIH is the government's really research arm of cancer research and disease yep. control. Other, well, the CDC controls diseases, but uh, in terms of research, uh, the yeah, NIH. No, I mean, the NIH has a, a, a pretty good sized budget to kind of bring bring basic research forward, and and um, yeah, being there was an awesome experience. So. When I was wrapping up my, my PhD, I knew I wanted to stay in immunology, but I, I wanted to move into this different world, this, this uh, new burgeoning field of what we call like the microbiome, right? And so for those of you guys, your listeners that don't know, the microbiome is basically the uh, like something on the order of 100 trillion bacteria that live on our skin, in our mouths, in our digestive tract, like our uh, small and large intestine. Um, for women, female reproductive tract, and things like that. And so there, no one was really like paying attention, like talking about like no one doing anything. Nobody was paying attention to this 20 years ago. Like anyone that was was publishing in low-level journals and not getting any attention. And then slowly, right around at the time that I was finishing my PhD, people were really saying, oh my God, like these bacteria control everything, right? And so I knew that was where I wanted to go. Um, so I found a really great lab down there, uh, Dr. Belcage. She's probably one of the best, if not the best, microbiome immunology researchers in the world. And uh, interviewed and was lucky enough to get a job down there. Um, and so picked up, packed up my car in the middle of the night, drove down to D.C. Um, and was there late, like I want to say early 2012. Um, and it was great. You know, it's, a, it's an amazing place to do research at the NIH. Of course, it's the government, so there's some you know tape that you have to cut through to do anything. But the the technologies and the research uh, opportunities that are there are you know um, there's there's second to none. And so uh, I ended up only being there for about two years. Uh, it was a shorter postdoc than I kind of anticipated, but um, life happened with <laughs> meeting my wife and her coming up to Dartmouth. Um, but it was amazing. Two two of the two of the better years of my life really kind of helped form. Um, a big part of like my science development, that's for sure. Yeah, the NIH is, uh, we, we had one of the NIH doctors and directors at one of our science meetings two years ago, and it was pretty interesting mm-hmm. to just hear from him the capabilities and the capacity that they have. And um, a lot of our scientists that we have funded have received grants um, and have worked, um, you know, in consortiums with the NIH. Sure. And so it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, you know, it is a critical part. Uh, to research, I think, in, in this country in terms of trying to beat cancer, at least from my perspective that I've seen. Um, so I'm going to shift again. So we're shifting here a little bit. And I did mention in the beginning, uh, there was I, I, looked to, I looked on your uh, publications, sure. and there was something that really um, kind of just really the title got my interest, which was this acute uh, gastrointestinal infection induces long-lived microbiotic-specific T-cell responses. And you're laughing. Uh, so, yeah, so that was, I was a, I was a support a support player on that team, and it yeah. was a really cool project uh, to be a, like even a part of in the lab uh, while we were there. Yeah, for sure. So, so I'd love to learn more about this. I mean, naturally, the abstract just gives you kind of, you know, the, the basic gist in, in human language. 
or not human language, but as I say, they kind of dial it down a bit. So it's not as scientific. Uh, but this is something that's been really fascinating. Um, you know, part of my role here, Mike, is I meet with a lot of the scientists. Um, and I was just out on the West Coast and, you know, there were four centers present. Um, there was a, a big insurance consortium as well. And, you know, we ran the gamut from immunology to basic research, to basic biology, to clinical trials. Um, you know, and there's been uh, another scientist that we've worked with. You know, we've talked a, a lot about T cell responses and, you know, supercharging T cells, taking them out of the body and supercharging them and then re, you know, putting them back into the body to have that um, response that's positive, um, you know, with the cancer. So I, I thought this was very interesting. It just caught my eye um, as you read into it, you know, talking about activating. Sure. Um, you know, effector cells and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. You know, concept that um, that the lab had specifically the lead author. His name's Tim. Uh, he's a really smart guy. And so the basic idea is that you know, throughout your life, you're going to have gastrointestinal infections, right? Especially if you're living maybe not so much in the first world, but more so in the third world, you're going to have a significant number of them early in your life. Um, and you know. Basically, if you think about it, like your gastrointestinal tract from your mouth all the way down to the business end down there is basically outside the body, right? Mm -hmm. It's basically a tube that runs through you, but you're, it's outside of your body. And in there, there's all these bacteria, like I said, that are responsible. Now we're learning for controlling a huge number of, of physiological responses. And in general, you want to kind of keep them separate from you. And for the most part, your, your immune system tries to build up a kind of like a barrier, um, with these things called antibodies, mucus production, and all kinds of things like that. Um, but when you have these, you know, um, when you have these infections, say like a, you know something like a norovirus or maybe like a parasitic infection, those those barriers can break down, and these bacteria that live inside your intestines can come through and be exposed to your immune system, and you can generate T cell responses against them. And so this was a concept that I think a lot of people had, but no one had ever really proven before that it was possible. And so what the lab did, and you know, under, you know, really Tim took a, a big component of that in a, underneath his own um, work, was able to really show that that happened. So he was able to induce an infection in, in mice and show that that we the, the mice were able to generate a very specific T cell response against those bacteria. Um, it was. Uh, it was a really, really an elegant study, um, and it kind of goes to show that like our immune system is constantly interacting with um, the bacteria that are down there and generating T cell responses, and whether or not that contributes to things like autoimmunity or Crohn's or colitis, you know, um, gastrointestinal cancers potentially down the road are things that I think are kind of can come out of that study, um, and so a uh, really nice piece of work to be, to be honest with you. And that's why it was published in a great journal like Science. So. Yeah, fascinating stuff. So to go back to immunology, and this is kind of a broad question, so I sure. apologize, Mike. Do you think we know enough about immunology today? Um, you know, like, I, I guess let me rephrase the question. You know, like with pancreatic cancer, you know, immunology really hasn't worked. So why and, and you know for, for the general audience yeah we, we just haven't found a way to turn on the body's immune system to fight the cancer as we have with other cancers or like when you get a cold I always tell people the easiest way to explain immunology is like hey you get a cold or you get a cut you know your body's own defense system you know takes care of the cut you don't get 
you know, sepsis, you don't get an infection, you don't have to chop your arm or your leg off wherever the cut is, or you don't die from a cold, where though we have seen the flu virus, you know, become stronger and stronger. So, you know, I think our body, you know, whether that's uh, immunology breaking down maybe, or, you know, just certain other uh, parameters or certain other things coming into play, but how do we become better with immunology so that you know, with pancreatic cancer, with these other diseases that, you know, we, we do get it where it does work. What do you, what do you think in your own personal opinion? I know this is kind of a loaded question and it might be a hard one to answer, but you know, for someone who's been in this field, you know, for a long, long time, a lot longer than I have, um, and is really an expert in immunology, what, what do you think we need to do to be better yeah. at it? I think, I think, um, we still need to, we need to do a lot of work. Um, so I think, there's a, we've had a, a good number of breakthroughs and we talked about those a little bit already. Um, but it, there's, they're still sort of like just the tip of the iceberg, you know, um, the immune system has a lot of redundancies to it, right? Because when it goes out of control, like in a, in a, let's say in an autoimmune condition, mm. it's bad news. It's really bad news. And so the immune system is built in a significant number of sort of, um, breaks on that to try to prevent it from happening. And unfortunately, cancer has learned sort of how to, how to corrupt those breaks to use them against ourselves. And so, you know, what we're learning is that there's a number of people out there that will probably respond to like one immunotherapy, but it's not going to be everybody, you know? So it's, let's take something like um, melanoma with like an anti-PD-1 treatment. You're probably going to have something on the order of 25, depending upon the publication, perhaps, you know, with the right patient population up to 50% responders. That's great. But there's a significant number of people that are still not going to respond. Maybe they'll respond to a different treatment. But I think what people are starting to develop is this concept that we're going to have to take multiple breaks off the system in what we call combination therapy, right? So combination therapy could be trying to take two breaks off. So maybe you block target one and target two with like antibodies. Maybe you do uh, a cancer vaccine. So you figure out that for maybe for pancreatic, there's a mutation in one gene that we can that the immune system can recognize and you combine that with a checkpoint blockade. There's so many different iterations and sort of algorithms that have yet to be tested. That's where the future of immunology is going. And I think that's what we need to continue to support at like a, uh, a basic science funding level, mm-hmm. right? The, the industries are heavily involved. So the, the big names out there, you know, the Merck's, the Pfizer's, BMS, all of them are doing the same thing, but you know, we still like there are numbers of checkpoint regulators out there that are still not discovered. They're not even they haven't even been identified or studied yet. You know, um, do we have a couple of the big ones? Sure, but I think I think it'll be a while still before we really truly uncover everything that the immune system is capable of doing and trying to figure out which ones are going to be the best treatment therapies for each individual. Right. That's where it's all moving is sort of individualized therapy in the future. So really personalized medicine. Yeah, personalized yeah. medicine for cancer is coming, right? Yeah. There are, there are companies in Cambridge, so not too far uh, yeah. from me or from you guys. This is what they're doing, right? So they're taking they're taking can- like tumors. They're taking it, putting it through like – I won't get too technical. But they're basically figuring out what in there could potentially be used to try to generate a vaccine. Yep. It's not a vaccine to treat a million people. It's a vaccine to treat you. You, yeah. Right? So the process is going to be take the tumor, analyze it, generate a vaccine, um, and treat that person. That is personalized medicine. You know, 
whether or not it'll work from a business point of view is a completely yeah. different question. And ultimately, it has to be answered because, um, you know, realistically, it's it's going to be an expensive venture, right? Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, this is where people are starting to put their efforts into is personalized treatment for cancer, you know? Well, I think with a lot of the genetic testing, um, you know, that's been happening over the last four to five years and knowing that, you know, well, I'll use the most common and probably the pop, the one that gets the most press, the BRCA, right? Yep. So we do know that, you know, hey, if you have the BRCA gene mutation, that uh, there are certain protocols that work better um, in terms for pancreatic cancer. But we also know that BRCA links to breast, prostate, and ovarian. So um, I, I think it'll be very interesting. I mean, you, you bring up a really, really great point, you know, with this whole idea and concept of, you know, the personalized medicine. I hope with the advances in technology that the pricing to do this uh, could yeah. come down, right? Like that, it will. It, it always will. You know, yeah. I think um, it's always going to be highest at the start because of the, the sort of infrastructure that has to be built up around yeah. each of these new drugs, right? Um, you know, the government does a good job supporting small businesses like the one that I work for with yeah. SBIR and, and STTR grants and things like that. Um, but ultimately, you got to get the big boys involved. You yeah. Know? Um, the government will never probably have enough funds uh, dedicated to running clinical trials themselves. So eventually you've you got to get, you got to get the, the, the big pharmaceutical companies involved to make it happen. And over time, those costs will come down. Correct. Competition uh, and infrastructure will be put in place to make it happen. Yeah. And I think in ingenuity, you know, and innovation, yep. you know, with, with the way that I think society has gone now where, you know, you have some really bright people all over the world that can do this. And I've just seen it from the genetic testing standpoint. I think, oh, yeah. you know, it, it used to be around five, $6,000 and now the price point's more around four. Um, and yeah, hopefully it's going to continue to fall. Yeah. Like absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that's great stuff. Um, I want to hand it over to my man Vin here, who uh, I know you guys know each other well, and I know Vin Vin's got some questions, and um, you know we want to talk a little bit about that. So Vin Camp, our program director here at uh, Project Purple for our, our fitness and CrossFit, the mic is yours. Yeah. So Mike, yeah, um, my take is just a little bit more on the athletic side. So getting into you know, what we were talking about at the beginning. Um, and I think there is, like you said, some sort of overlap for yourself too. When you were going through the immunology courses, you're seeing how nutrition and that kind of stuff could benefit your own athletic performance. I think, I think you competed at the uh, regionals way back yep. a couple years ago, right up in Albany or whatever it was. <laughs> um, you know, and I've read some of your articles and your blogs. Um, I follow you, um, cause I've, I've worked with you too on my macros and everything, but like starving the athlete or, you know, stop starving the athletes and that kind of stuff. Um, given that we're getting into the CrossFit world and, you know, that we do have a huge presence in the marathons, um, if you could just speak to the listeners about, you know, some biggest takeaways, you know, that you've noticed over your working with people or working with yourself that, you know, people are doing wrong and could potentially do better to improve their, you know, performance or improve their overall health. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it's sort of, it's sort of a nice parallel to what we were just talking about in the sense of, um, you know, everyone's unique and, and, just like we were saying, there should be a, an individualized, you know, therapy for cancer that's going to be eventually sort of the future of that world. You know, my take on nutrition um, and supporting training or health and fitness, whatever you want to aim for, is that everyone's a little bit unique as well, and so their program should be too. But there are some good generalities that we can kind of, um, I think, focus on, right? And I think, you know, it's interesting. We live in this weird world, I think, of um, 
a, a significant amount of the population that is sedentary um, and yet has absolutely no fear of eating anything and everything. Right. And then we've got this overperforming crowd of people that want to go to the gym for hours on day, and they have this overt fear of putting carbohydrates into their mouth. Um, and it's sort of that odd dichotomy, right? Where the people that need the carbs the most are the ones that are the most afraid of them, and the ones that need them the least have absolutely no problem consuming them ad nauseum. Um, and so that's sort of one of the things that I work I work hard to try to fix. You know, um, most of our, the people that come to work with us um, are drastically under eating to fuel their performance. Um, you know, I would say something on the order of anywhere from eighty to ninety percent. Um, of people are not eating enough, and it, that that runs the gamut from CrossFit athletes to triathletes and marathoners. We work with them all. Um, they they generally under eat men and women as well. So, you know, what we do is try to shine some light on that and give some um, some clear directions on how they can um, sort of dial in their nutrition and their lifestyles to support their goals. So, you know, for me, that means trying to find someone who can uh, help you develop a nutrition plan. So for me, that's a macro-based approach. So macros simply means protein, fat, or carbs. Those are the only three macronutrients there are. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's for everybody, but I think if you're going to try to have a, a very focused goal, you should really have a focused nutrition plan. Um, so what I do is people come to me uh, or one of my coaches um, we give them a specific plan about how many calories to eat per day and what that breakdown of protein, fat, and carbs should look like. And the general rule for the most part, not always, but for the most part, is the more exercise you're doing, the more carbohydrates you're going to have into your diet. Um, so then we help them along that way, that path. We give them instructions on you know, what to do with a pre-workout, what to do for post-workout um, to help their bodies recover so that they can get themselves ready for their next training session. Um, we work on lifestyle factors. So... It's not a direct, you know, impact on nutrition necessarily, but sleep is a huge thing. And so we work with athletes to make sure that their sleep is really uh, dialed in. And I think that would be a, a solid piece of advice for everybody that's maybe listening to this from more of the performance point of view. If you have nothing, if you learn nothing else from this whole talk about what you can do to improve your body composition or your performance in the gym or running marathons, it would be to sleep as much as you possibly can, aiming for eight hours a night. Um, so Mike, so when my wife takes power naps on Saturdays, then I can't say like, hey, like, hon, like we got all these things to do. She's going to come back and say, but I need my sleep. It's critical to my marathon training. I, I would ask your wife how much sleep she's getting at nighttime. She <laughs> 10 hours. No, no. I, I, on that though, I, so, so what do you think? And I just want to jump back in here. Sure. So like Elon Musk, for example, and naturally the guy's not – a competitive athlete, but we're going to call him out here. You know, Elon says he gets like four hours of sleep, but from a mental capacity, whether it's, you know, not necessarily. Um, and I, I think, you know, from an athletic perspective, you have to be mentally sharp as well. You know, whether sure. you're crossfitting or marathoning triathlons, I mean, that's part of it. So do you feel though, then like, let, let's call Elon Musk out here. Like the guy says he gets four hours of sleep. There's no way physically that that's possible. Right. And, I mean, and to maintain that high level of, you know, the guy's so, a peak performer mentally, yeah. you know, and physically because he's running around the world shooting off sure. rockets and there, cars. So there's, there's, some, there's some research out there that says there are a select few number of individuals that can apparently get away with less sleep, they, they claim. Um, you know, they tend to be CEOs of large, <laughs> powerful companies such as Elon Musk. Um, whether or not it's possible or not, I don't have a good answer for you. Um, 
But the reality of the situation is that, you know, even if even if it is, let's let's just say that he's genetically gifted. He needs four hours of sleep a night, and he's got the right, you know, um, the right body to make that happen. It has almost no application to like everyone else that I deal with. You know what I mean? Like the people that are doing those types of things are running companies, or they're like you know Navy SEALs and Delta Force guys because they're just naturally drawn to that type of environment. Um, you know, I also have a feeling that people in that job might claim that they don't need that much sleep, <laughs> but at the end of the day, they probably would operate a whole hell of a lot better with more. Yeah. You know. Um, so either they're the genetic exception or they're lying <laughs> about True. what they could be doing with even two hours a day of more sleep, you know? Yeah. Sure. We don't know how many power naps he's taking on his jets when yeah, he's going maybe, coast maybe to he's coast. Maybe he's there with your wife. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's taking those power, power naps. all day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, Mike, I think you know, talking on that athletic side was yeah. is great. And I know, you know you've had over 40 regional athletes last year, so a lot of them went to the games, um, high-performing. Um, I know you've done some talks at, like, Power Monkey for the athletes yeah. that go there and everything, which is awesome. Um, but what about, like, for those listeners that are just, you know, the weekend warriors or the average Joe? I mean, what are yeah, some things totally. that, you know, they can benefit for? I know the overall – you know, concept is the same. You want to balance everything out, but I mean, can they truly benefit from this balanced or increasing their carbs or, right. you know, that fear yeah. of carbs, that kind of stuff? Exactly. So that's a great question. Ben. So like, you know, should, should your average person worry about this? And I think it comes down to the right time, the the right goal, right? Right. So by no means do I, or I think any good nutrition coach say that you should constantly worry about balancing out macros and tracking your diet you know, 365 days a year for the rest of your life. That's right. that's not realistic and it's not, a, it's not a healthy relationship with food. You know, but I do think your average everyday, like you said, weekend warrior would still have a really good benefit from even doing it for just a month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes people come to me, you know, um, I work with all kinds of people, athletes and regular folks as well. And, um, you know, we have this eye-opening moment sometime in the first month where, they go, you know, like, holy shit, dude, did you have any idea how much, like, calories are in a Dunkin' Donuts, like, double cream <laughs> yeah. coffee? And I'm like, well, yeah, I did, but now you do, too. Yeah, like, yeah an 800-calorie coffee. And I'm like, yes, this explains some things, you know? Um, and they just didn't know. You know, it's not like they were sitting there making an intelligent, bad decision in their life, right? They just didn't have the mental awareness around it. And so simply taking one to two months, running through your daily routine, and tr- what I could say, tracking your diet can be an eye-opening experience you know right. um, a lot of people that i deal with come from like the paleo community especially yeah, in crossfit absolutely right? yep and i think there's a ton of benefits to the paleo diet but oftentimes people kind of don't see the physical transformations that they miss, maybe are looking for and next thing you know we're analyzing their diet and it's like well you know how how much almond flour did you use in those <laughs> paleo muffins that you right. made and it's like, yeah, okay, that's a significant amount of fat. And what did you use to like bind them all together? Coconut oil. Okay, that's right. that's some more fat, you know. Um, and next thing you know, it's an eye-opening experience to, to think that like this person who thinks they're making healthy decisions and they are from a food quality point of view is actually putting like four thousand calories into their day-to-day diet, yeah. you know. Um, so it can just be for your regular average day folks that just want to live a healthy life, you know, one to two months of tracking. Um, can make a huge difference in just teaching you the types of foods that allow for you to reach maybe like a, an aesthetic goal, like a, a right. physical appearance goal that you might be looking for on top of all the physical health benefits. Right. And I think, I think that's important too. And, and one thing I always 
concentrate on myself is that mindset part of things, you know, as being a coach and everything. And I, I like how you said, you know, do it for one to two months because they're going to, like you said, with they, they're going to start noticing what they're putting in their body. Um, totally. You know, do you, do you feel like that we have in this community, we'll say in the CrossFit community, that's yeah. not necessarily focused on the elite level is, um, is two bad cycles. And one right. sort of like, we'll call it macro cycle, um, and no pun intended, which is, yeah. you know, 10 months of the year we spend trying to diet. Right. right. And we have two months of the year between like November to December where we need to collect calorie excess. Yep. And I think that ratio screwed up. You know, um, I think people would be better off taking nine months of the year to really focus on trying to balance their calories in versus calories out and not trying to diet. And then if they want to have a weight loss period, something in the range of like three months over the course of a year is an appropriate level for health. Right. So that's sort of the big picture. Right. Secondary to that is like, especially in this community, we have, we have, um, like a guilt complex that sort of sets in around like weekends and sort of how that impacts Monday through Friday. And people get themselves into this really bad cycle um, where they want to eat really healthy on, we'll say on Sunday and Monday. So they, you know, they yeah. eat, you know, a bunch of fruits and veggies and, you know, uh, sweet potatoes and lean chicken and, um, you know, all natural paleo products and stuff like that. And then the weekend comes and inevitably they end up having a pretty big caloric bomb, mm-hmm. right? You know, right. they go out for a dinner or there's a football game or something on Saturday, or it might just be a regular old weekend. And um, I think Sunday comes around and they generate this guilt complex again, and they start this cycle over and over, basically being drastically underfeeding themselves Monday through Friday. And perhaps as a result of that, you know, underfeeding, overeating dramatically on Saturdays and Sundays. You know, I think if we can get away from that concept and move more towards like a balance that takes across, we'll say six days or seven days of the week, um, that can kind of break the cycle and get people out of that bad loop. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a healthy way to eat of right. <laughs> generating guilt around food or food, food types, you know? Right. So my eight slices of pizza last <laughs> night for dinner, since I've been trying to eat good all week, just were my food bomb. Uh, yeah. the, the, so I, there's so much, I think, you know, I just want to jump in here. Yeah. I have a question. If there's like one thing, Mike, because I think like nutrition can be very intimidating for someone who doesn't get it, you know, and I think society, you know, we're all into instant gratification on every level, but more so when it comes to nutrition, right? You can, here in New England, man, you said it, you can roll up in your car to the Dunkin' drive-thru and, you know, they're they're very creative and very intelligent on how they, they price and model these packaging of food and it's kind of like the happy meal process now everywhere like you can go to duncan and for three bucks you can get the 800 calorie coffee and the the 500 calorie donut you know for 299 you know and that will hold hold you you know that'll be your craving or your cheat you know for that day so what are what what is maybe like the most important piece of trying to create change here in a healthy way or uh, the one thing that we can do um, mentally, you know, that could change to, to do this. Is it to sit down with someone? Is it to maybe take the apple or to, to really kind of fo- like, there's a lot of things here and I just want to kind of give the audience, maybe there's like one thing that they could really take away. That's really impactful that can change their eating lifestyle or their, you know, to, on tra- to get on track to a better uh, eating situation for them. Yeah, I'm trying to think of one. Thing. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard, right? I, and I'll be honest, like, um, it's so it you know it, my mind keeps coming back to it, and it's comes down to like stress, right? You know, um, it's so it seems so 
counterintuitive to not talk about like a nutritional aspect, but yeah. when it comes down to controlling your nutrition. But for me, it comes down to stress. Um, and stress can be a bunch of things. It can be your personal life. It can be a lack of sleep. It can be training. It can be all kinds of aspects. But if you don't get your stress under control, having an appropriate diet is a really, really hard thing to do. Um, you know, I work with a lot of people and I work, I have people come to me that have tried very hard to make things work on their own. And, um, a common experience is, you know, yeah, diet's going great for a couple of days and then maybe I get stressed out at work, right? You know, it's a longer day or, um, you know, maybe my kid got sick or maybe a parent got sick, you know, and then it's like everything goes out the window and it go your body goes into survival mode, you know, um, or it could be, you know, my diet was going great and then, yeah, I only got like six hours of sleep last night and the next day I just, I could not give a, like a rat's ass about what I put in my mouth, like I'll eat anything that day. Um, it all comes down to a stress response and it's, it's natural. It's sort of, it's a physiological thing. So if we can work on controlling our stress better, I think people will have a much better chance of having a good solid diet overall. And it makes sense like from a biological point of view. Absolutely. Um, when you're stressed, your body makes a molecule called cortisol, mm-hmm. right? Cortisol does a number of different things, but it's basically the body's stress hormone. Your body doesn't really want to experience consistent elevated stress over time. And one of the best ways to minimize or to, to stop cortisol production, to stop that stress response is to spike your blood sugar. And so when people talk about stress eating or perhaps not even intentionally doing a stress eating, perhaps off of a bad night of sleep, it's sort of a natural physiological response to drop that cortisol level. And so again, if you can take that out from other avenues, if you can figure out ways to, you know, sleep better, you know, um, balance your life so that you're not uh, experiencing so much overall stress, which is of course a big loaded question. Um, I think people will have a much better chance of sticking to whatever diet they choose to proceed with, whether that's, you know, uh, high, you know, high fat, low carb, or ketogenic diets, or macro counting, or paleo diets, your chances of success and sticking with it are going to be much better if you can manage your stress. And I think that that's something to like the stress. I was going to ask you about that, but I think it's breaking that habit loop. You know, like you said, someone has that stress, you know, yeah. indicator, and they run out to Dunkin' Donuts or they run out to anything because it's fast, because it's easy, because it's totally. you know, it's on the way. Um, it's almost replacing that, you know, that. You have the re, you have the initial reaction, then you have the re, the reward. It's fitting, you know, whatever that is to 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 replace that bad choice or that bad food or that quick thing to get the exactly. same reward. It's, it's learning yeah. that it's like to some extent just teaching people that it's a physiological response and right. it's not some mental weakness thing that they have can provide yep. more control on it, right? Absolutely. Like kind of associate guilt with it, like hey. You know, like you're a bad person because you're going to go out and make that choice that goes against your diet. That's 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 a crappy way to, right. to feel about something. But if I educate someone, I say, Vin, you know, like it's actually natural. Like this is your body's natural yep. response to try to deal with that stress by spiking your blood sugar through these crappy foods. Maybe maybe now that we've recognized it, it's not you as a person, but we can figure out a way to deal with it better. Yep. Maybe it's, you know, taking five minutes to write down in a journal or, or separating yourself and going for a 15-minute walk to clear your head. And we can start to replace those bad strategies with better ones, you know. But if you don't understand that this is sort of like your body fighting against your goals, um, it kind of creates like that guilt complex, which is probably the worst thing that you could possibly do in that scenario. Right. Yeah. yeah that's fascinating yeah. stuff. So uh, I, I want to keep us on track here. So I, I'm going to step maybe three steps to the left here. <laughs> 
with a kind of uh, another loaded question. And I apologize, Mike, I've, I've kind of put you on the spot here, but uh, I, I think this has been super fascinating. There's so many other directions we can go here, but I'm trying to stay on track here and, and let my mind kind of stay focused here. And we're talking about nutrition and food. Do you feel the type of food that someone eats, digests, plays a part? And what do I mean by that? Do you think it makes a difference that, and, and I've been to a couple conferences and we've talked about this at length about nutrition and, and how that factors into cancer, but does it have to be all organic? Does it have to be all farmed? Um, does it matter if it's, you know, we're talking about, you know, protein, fats, and carbs. So, okay, so like if you're getting your fats and carbs from, you know, processed bread or, um, you know, canned vegetables versus fresh vegetables. Um, you know, do you think that has played a part in someone's health? Um, is there a difference? And I'm going to bring this back to, you know, we were talking briefly about, well, not briefly, but we talked about the immunology and getting your body, you know, to respond, to cure itself. And when you start to ingest, things that aren't necessarily natural that are foreign that is probably going to play a role in that response in some way and not not necessarily cancer but also digestion i would imagine as well yeah i mean so it's a it's kind of a tough question to answer but at the end of the day you know i do think that food quality does play a role in people's overall health and it could potentially play a role in sort of cancer um this the lockdown like scientific studies that you want to have done for someone like myself, who's so analytically minded, haven't been done, mm-hmm. you know, um, but you can start to jar some correlates for sure. You know, I think, I think at the end of the day, it's a date, like a, a delicate balance though, right? Because if, if we tell people like, Hey, the, the only way to really eat to make sure that you're having the best chance of having overall health is to have all, all natural, organic, unprocessed foods 24 seven. Yeah. That creates an unrealistic situation. And sometimes people want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. So yes. Right. I'm done. Like, whatever, I guess I'm not going to make that work, you know? And so what I try to talk to people about is like the good, like a good, better, best principle, right? So like, Hey, you know, we're going to start off with good, good strategies, right? So we're going to try to get every day, you know, um, a bunch of fruits and veggies and, you know, all natural carb sources and potatoes and maybe some more like rice and things like that into your diet. And let's try to avoid perhaps some of the more processed things. Let's try to get that out, you know? Um, and then if they can do that, great. You know, and if they have the financial means to move to say, hey, look, maybe we should get not just, you know, good lean protein sources, but maybe we can get those from wild caught, you know, fish and some grass fed beef sources. That might be better for you. But for a lot of people, like the financials around that are, are honestly just not going to work, right? It's more expensive. Um, and sure, I'd love to see people make that investment in their health as opposed to their, you know, their um, health care costs. But the reality of the situation is that may not be viable in that moment, you know, but if they can do it, great. Let's move to that principle, you know, um, of eating foods, like you said, that are, are organic, that are from down the road as opposed to from the other half of the world, you know, and have had to be picked when they weren't right and shipped, you know, um, and, in less than ideal situations. So are those things valuable? Should we focus on them? Yes. Do I think that they need to be the absolute end game for everybody? Absolutely not. You know, I think there's a, a principle that we can basically say, do the best you can. You know, if you got to get, you know, your protein sources from, you know, the local grocery store as opposed to from the farmer down the street, because that's how it works for you financially, then you should do that. You know, if you got to buy frozen veggies because that's what you can afford, well, it's better than not having any veggies at all. 
you know, maybe going down the street to the local fast food place where there's a lot of processed stuff going on, yeah. you know? Um, so I try to, I try to, I try to take that approach with people of like, let's start making good decisions and then we'll try to make better decisions. And if we can, we'll work on the best decision. Yeah. Does, that's, that, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's right on point And I think you're, you're right on point with it. I think it's hard, uh, similar to, like you said, you know, people come in and, and you just can't change it overnight and, and, you know, the change has to be slow in order for it to be effective and to to stick yeah. really with patients and with, with clients, I should say, and, and families and people that are trying to do that. So I got two questions for you. Well, one, one last question here for you, and we're going to wrap sure. this up. Um, what is the greatest thing you've learned that cost you the least? The greatest, the greatest thing I've learned that cost me the least? Yeah. Oh, wow. That is, that's a big question. <laughs> um, that's why we saved it for last, Mike. Someone asked somebody. It's sort of similar. Someone once asked me like, "What's like the best piece of advice that I like that I learned?" Um, and it, it's it kind of comes down to the basic principle of like, you know, when people talk about being lucky. It really just looks a lot more like hard work, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, like, you know, I I'd rather work hard and continue to try to be better myself at everything that I do. At the end of the day, it seems to work out pretty well, you know. Um, so I guess the, the basic principle of, you know, luck looks an awful lot like hard work would probably be my, <laughs> my answer to that question. That's awesome. 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 Well, uh, appreciate the time, Mike. This has been awesome. I'd love to have you back on again. Sure. And uh, for our listeners out there, um, where can our listeners, our followers uh, find you on social media, on the World Wide Web? What's the best way of them connecting with you and your community and what you're doing? Yeah, so from a from a basic nutrition point of view, and which is really kind of the what I, what I put out there socially, um, the best place is probably through my website, which is uh, M two, so like Mike Malloy, M two Performance Nutrition uh, We have an Instagram site there as well. Um, again, at M two Performance Nutrition, and then my own personal Instagram, which is at Mike and then underscore M two PN. That's basically where you can find me. There's a blog that I write on the website, which has got some content around sort of my, my views on nutrition and um, overall, which I think are probably expand on some of the things that we talked about here, uh, eating for performance and just sort of overall how to make it all work um, that I think people would enjoy. Awesome. Well, thank you, Mike, for your insight and your knowledge. It's been awesome to have you on the podcast here at Project Purple. Thank you, Vin. Yeah. And uh, we hope to have you back sometime soon. Yeah, thanks for all that you guys do. You keep killing it. You're doing a great job.